All right, good afternoon. We're going to go ahead and get started. We're going to have Colton Balance lead us in a prayer in just a little while. Colton is a Bear Valley graduate that preaches up in the mountains of Colorado and uh, Conifer. And uh, uh, Colton and his wife Katie are doing a terrific job there and uh, appreciate them so much. Colton has been one that has helped us in the development department and uh, so, uh, Colton, if, why don't we go ahead and have you lead us in prayer, and then I'll introduce the speaker. Yeah. Let's pray together. Our holy and righteous Father, we're grateful to serve you. We're grateful for uh, this weekend of lectures that encourage us and build us up and sustain our souls uh, for the coming months and years. Uh, we're grateful for uh, this session here. We pray that our, our hearts may be encouraged, that uh, we can grow in our knowledge of you and your scriptures and be uh, be further encouraged to serve you and to continue walking with you each day of our lives. Uh, we're grateful for Bear Valley, what they do for the uh, blessing it is to be here this weekend. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Those of us that are on this side of the Mississippi, some would say the wrong side uh, of the Mississippi, are not as familiar with the Hester name as uh, those that are east of the Mississippi, but uh, our speaker this hour is David Hester, who uh, is a third generation uh, preacher, and uh, so a long line in his family of men that have uh, uh, been full-time in the Lord's work. David is presently the associate professor uh, for the B VP Black uh, College of Biblical Studies and um, the School of Theology there at Faulkner and uh, is just doing such a terrific job with uh, the work that he does there. Uh, if you know David, you know he's one that loves studying, loves academics. He uh, has received a number of degrees and in each level of the degrees that he's got, he's always received uh, academic credentials uh, like cum laude or summa cum laude uh, and has uh, a PhD in New Testament summa cum laude from the term School of Theology, but um, he is um, uh, continuing to do the good work. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be with David in a few weeks, uh, and I've been honored with an invitation to speak on their lectureship, and um, so I'm looking forward to spending some time with him, but uh, I've appreciated David from, uh, from a distance, the good work that he's done, and um, uh, I think we may have met for the first time, like last year or two years ago it, it hasn't been that long and so um, just really uh, love this man and love the good work that he's done and honored to, to get to know him a little bit better so uh, I was excited about the topic uh, that he chose and uh, we'll let him tell you about it so David come preach the word thank you Danny I bring you greetings from Montgomery, Alabama, where it's a little bit warmer than it is here. <laughs> Just a little bit. But uh, really glad to be a part of this lecture program. Of course, the good work that Danny is doing here with the Bear Valley School of Preaching and, and the work that you've done over the years. And we've really appreciated it from the distance over in Montgomery. And uh, really glad to have Danny as a part of the our lectureship in October, October 22nd through 26th. We have brochures out on the table, so if you want to pick one up. Uh, the debate that is going to be happening during that week uh, was our new president's idea. First meeting that I had with him about the lectureship last summer, he brought up 
that he wanted to have a debate on campus in front of the students. And my mind was saying, yes, yes, yes. I said, okay, that's great. <laughs> but uh, Mitch Henry has been 100% behind what we're doing in the Bible College. He's just been a tremendous supporter for what we are and what we're about. And uh, in fact, his wife, her father was an elder at Moulton for many he's retired isn't he yes sir his son uh, Mitch's son is a member there that's right that's right so you're very familiar with the Henry family great great family on both sides and my wife was in school with him for a time at Auburn back years and years ago so she knew him before I ever did uh, but at any rate well, I'm just glad to be here and be able to address this subject for this hour salvation in the Psalms you know the term salvation is used mentioned a total of 67 times in the Psalms when you examine in those instances you find something fascinating. David uses the word 24 times. In most of those speaking of the fact of God's salvation, giving thanks for salvation, uh, giving thanks for or praise for deliverance from his enemies and also praising God for the ultimate salvation which he brings. Perhaps one of the most famous of those is in Psalm 18. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my savior, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Sound familiar? And I am saved from my enemies. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. Psalms 18. But it's not only David who praises God's salvation. Asaph does that also in four of the Psalms. In Psalms 50, for example, Asaph contrasts the favor that God shows to those who are faithful to him with the fury that he pours out on the wicked. He says, The mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown. May our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before him, and a storm is violently raging around him. He summons the heaven above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear my people, and I will speak. Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor male goats from your idol from your folds for every animal of the forest is mine the cattle on a thousand hills I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine if I were hungry I would not tell you for the world is mine and everything it contains shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats Offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me on the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked God says, What right do you have to tell me of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you yourself hate discipline and you throw my words behind you. When you see a thief, you become friends with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loosen evil and your tongue harnesses deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your mo own mother's son. That sound familiar? Oh, yeah. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will rebuke you and present the case before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God. I will tear you in pieces and there will be no one to save you. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me and to him who sets his way properly, I will show the salvation of God. 
There are two times in Psalms 85 and again Psalms 88 that the sons of Korah uh, simply declare God as the God of salvation. Ethan the Ezraite does so once in Psalms 89. Unnamed authors mention God and salvation in 13 of the Psalms. And it's in one of those, Psalms 119, that God, that one finds the locus of the salvation of God in the Psalms. Psalms 119, as has already been mentioned today by another speaker, is an acrostic poem in Hebrew. Going order down the Hebrew alphabet, divided into 22 sections of 8 verses each. Each line of each section begins with the same Hebrew letter in consecutive order. The central theme of the psalm is the Word of God. There are several words used in the psalm that are synonymous with the word law. Scholars disagree over exactly how many there are in total. Most say there are eight or nine. Some say ten. Burton Kaufman, though, I think is correct. He says this, quote, This writer believes that truth, Psalm 119, 151, should also be added to the list, making eleven in all. Regarding the meaning of law, he says, along with all the synonyms, it simply cannot be restricted to the Torah. Our Lord himself and also the Apostle Paul quoted both the Psalms and the prophets, referring to them as law. See, John 15, 25, 1 Corinthians 14, 21 as proof of this. He then says the synonyms as used here therefore mean the scriptures as a whole, end quote. And I think he's correct about that. Within Psalms 119, the unnamed author connects salvation with the Word of God. I might, I might add here, I believe personally that David wrote the psalm. Even though I can't prove it 100%, I believe he wrote it. That's, I'll leave it at that. He does this a total of six times, each time highlighting a different aspect. In verse 41, he says, May your favor also come to me, Lord, your salvation, according to your word. The words favor and salvation are parallel. It's in accordance with the word that this takes place. God's word is trustworthy. So the psalmist has no doubt that God's salvation is within reach. Verse 81 says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Here the psalmist is describing that which can only be given by God. The New American Standard translation of this uh, wait for does not quite convey the thought, but the King James, ESV, and others read hope in instead of wait for. The inspired author hopes for the word which will bring that which he desires, salvation. The Bible student of today can readily identify with the hope that is described by the psalmist. The third occurrence of the word salvation in the psalm is found in verse 123. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation in your righteous word. The first phrase is similar to what he had written in verse 82. My eyes fail with longing for your word. The psalmist's studies of God's word have been so prolonged and so intense, Kaufman writes, that his eyesight has been impaired, In quote. I think all of us can identify with that. In verse 123 in particular, he equates salvation of the righteous word. He longs for it so much he cannot cease in finding it within inspired testimony. Again, this is very familiar territory to those who attempt to be diligent students of God's Word. Eyeglasses, contact lenses, and magnifiers help to ease the physical discomfort which results from constant study. Yet it is a joy. 
when one looks at the context of verse 123, he sees some interesting assertions. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act for they have broken your law. Therefore I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Verses 125-128. and This describes an individual who is fully dedicated to the truth of God's word and who despises false doctrine. In an age where tolerance and diversity is exalted above objective truth, such an attitude is not looked upon favorably. But the servant of God must proclaim and uphold the truth without fear and without favor. Verse 155 sees salvation from another perspective, those who don't have it. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. The writer goes on to describe them. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. Verses 157 and 58. Those who are seeking their own way instead of God's way will meet their end. As we know, the 21st century has already seen the rise of philosophies which are indeed treacherous and wicked. And many are following after them. Consider this. As of 2022, there were 46,400 denominations worldwide. With the number expected to increase to 64,000 denominations by the year 2050. That does not count other religions. Islam has almost 2 billion followers. Hinduism claims over 1 billion adherents. There are almost 550 million Buddhists. On top of that, as of 2022, there are 147 million atheists. Think about it. 147 million atheists. In September of 2010, Christopher Hitchens, then the world's most prominent atheist, came to Birmingham, Alabama to debate the existence of God. He came to debate an agnostic. Think about it, an atheist, an agnostic. That almost sounds like a bad punchline, right? Well, I was there. I saw what happened. Now, if you know anything about Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens didn't get his start writing about religion and philosophy. Christopher Hitchens started out as a politician, got a writer on politics. He was a Marxist to begin with. He called for the impeachment, the execution of Henry Kissinger for war crimes. And to his dying day, he still said that Kissinger needed to be executed for war crimes. That's how radical he was in some things. But also he had shifted to the right on some things. He was for the war in Iraq. Even though he bristled at the idea that he was a neoconservative, he hated the thought of that. Still, he was an interesting writer on on, on politics. But when it came to religion, he was way off base. He wrote the book, God is Not Great, in which he spelled God with a little g, all the way through. He hates or hated all religion. And I mean all religion. Every single bit of it. He was interviewed prior to the debate by local media or local paper, Birmingham News. He was asked, why are you an atheist? He gave an interesting reason. Hitchens noted the many divisions in the religious world, as I've just noted, and correctly said, you know, they all can't be right. I thought, hmm, interesting. But then he 
said that would mean only one could be right if there is a God and the Bible is his word. And that's the conclusion Hitchens rejected out of hand. Most likely because he thought that would mean the Roman Catholic Church, which he despised. Well, he rejected all religion, he said, and became an atheist. His brother is a very religious man and still lives in, in England. Hitchens himself had dual citizenship between Britain and the United States. But Hitchens was seeing something that we have seen for many, many years. Jesus prayed for unity in John 17, 20, and 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through the word that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The current state of affairs in Christendom spawns atheism. It spawns agnosticism. Now, we strongly disagree with the now deceased Hitchens on the existence of God. Can he be faulted for seeing through the disunity that exists in religion? I had something else about Hitchens. Hitchens, by the time he had his debate in Birmingham, had terminal brain cancer. He knew he was going to die. When he came to Birmingham, 60 Minutes sent a film crew to film it. Hitchens, by this point, had all his head shaved and was sitting on a stool during that debate. A big auditorium there at the BJCC had that crowd in the palm of his hand. That's how persuasive he still was, even at that late stage. That's how the young people of that area, that is, that were attending UAB and other secular universities, were wanting someone that has the answers. And Hitchens seemed to have the answers. Well, religious unity is not a pipe dream. It's not something that's good to philosophize about, but impossible in practice. If it were not feasible, Jesus would not have made it a focus of his prayer in John 17. Creeds, catechisms, confessions of faith, whether written or unwritten, those are impediments to true unity. In Ephesians 4, Paul mentions seven times, each of uh, seven items, that is, each of which is preceded by the number one. The pertinent question to ask in that passage is, does one mean one? This is to say, does one mean that there are many different viewpoints, ideas, denominations, doctrines, all under one umbrella? Or does one mean only one? To those in Christendom, the question of the one body is beyond dispute. They would assert all the denominations are part of the universal, mysterious, one body of Christ. Yes, they would acknowledge there are many different doctrines and practices, yet they would have us believe we're all going to the same place, just traveling down different roads. But when this reasoning is applied to the other items in the list that Paul gives, it just falls apart. The apostle declares there is one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Now, suppose for a moment that a preacher got up before a large crowd of people and declared the following to a congregation. Think of Denny were to say something like this. I've done much careful study of the world's religions. There are many different views on so many subjects. I've arrived at the conclusion that there are many spirits. The Holy Spirit is important, but so are the spirits of the Navajo Nation. 
the spirits of the Sioux nation. These are equally viable. Or consider all the lords that people follow. Muhammad, Buddha, Vishnu, Christ. Certainly we can agree that all these lords are equal. And in our pluralistic society, to declare that one faith is superior to others is unthinkable. The faiths of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, all are parallel. God? Why? Of all the gods, of all major religions, they're all equal to each other. I think you would know what would happen if Denny were to suddenly say that. <laughs> he would be called on the carpet for it and subsequently fired, and rightly so. But he's never going to say that because he doesn't believe all that. I'm having fun at his expense. Well, I dare say the vast majority of conservative so-called evangelical denominations, such a declaration would start a war within that congregation. Yet those who would rightly oppose all of that have no issue affirming that there are many bodies that make up the one body and some of them would go on go so far as to say there are many baptisms that make up the one baptism consistency thou art a rare jewel indeed when Paul said one in Ephesians 4 he meant one there's one God no other there's one Lord no other there's one faith no other there is one spirit no other and there is one body the church Ephesians 1 22 and 23 and one baptism which is immersion for salvation Mark 16 16 Romans 6 3 and 4 no other why won't all people accept this platform for true unity there are many possible reasons yet human nature has not changed has it power prestige, popularity. These are all factors. Devotion to family and friends are strong distractions from doing the right thing. When my dad was preaching when I was growing up, he would often talk about some preachers are going off the tracks on like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And he said this, nine times out of ten, if you see a preacher going off on that, he's got a family member involved in a certain situation. That's right. And that can be repeated in so many other ways and so many other teachings. Well, our Savior's prayer in John 17 needs to be kept at the forefront. To achieve unity, true and lasting unity, all people must determine to follow the instructions in sacred writ. The challenge to New Testament Christianity is dawning, yet it's not an insurmountable problem. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Psalms 119, 159, and 160. As long as followers of Christ are dedicated to the truth of God's word, salvation is always near. No enemy of the cause of Christ can ever succeed. The fifth occurrence of the word salvation is in Psalms 119 is within a section which extols the word of God. He writes, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. Verses 161 to 68. The inspired writer can hope for the salvation of God because he does his commandments. Examining the context, this person stands in awe of, rejoices at, loves, and keeps God's word. 
As a result, he rejoices, he praises, he has peace, he hopes, and he loves. The Word of God generates all that. A New Testament example of the kind of people described here is found in an all-too-often-overlooked couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Luke describes Zacharias as a priest of the division of Abijah, Luke 1.5. This refers to the list given in order in 1 Chronicles 24.1-19. It is said in Luke 1.8 that Zacharias was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. He was faithful in his duties. Yet that's not all that's said concerning him or his wife Elizabeth. She was from the daughters of Aaron, Luke 1.5. Thus, John the Immerser came from a double priestly lineage. Concerning their character, what Luke says next is eye-opening. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, Luke 1.6. Here is a depiction of a couple who were faithful to the law of Moses and kept it. That should not be surprising. In light of what God expected of Israel as recorded in Deuteronomy. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 4, 39 and 40. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I am giving you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Now, this is only one of numerous passages in the book of Deuteronomy alone, which emphasizes the necessity of Israelites obeying the law of Moses, keeping it faithfully. How many times have you heard, no one could keep the law of Moses? That's simply not true. You could not obey it perfectly. Only one person did. That's Jesus Christ. But you could obey the law of Moses and be faithful. God expected it. Zacharias and Elizabeth did just that. They were human beings. 1 Kings 8.46 indicates that they also committed sin. All sin, in fact. Yet, they were declared to be righteous and blameless in the sight of God. That's exactly what God had expected of His children. And that's what defines Zacharias and Elizabeth. That leads to the last occurrence of that word salvation in Psalms 119. Verse 174 reads, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. The attitude described in this verse should typify every faithful child of God. Longing for the salvation of God is natural to the person who keeps God's Word. He or she delights in it. It's not some slavish devotion to an oppressive law code. No. This is heartfelt obedience to God's Word. In verse 172, the unnamed author declares, Let my tongue sing of your Word, for all your commandments are righteousness. The late lamented Flavel Nichols 
Brother Gus Nichols, one of Brother Gus Nichols' sons. I was good friends with him and his wife before for many years. He one time pointed out to me that in connection with Psalms 119-172 that it's no coincidence that Paul would later write in Romans 5-21 as sin reigned in death even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brother Nichols then said grace reigns through righteousness all of God's commandments are righteousness. Grace reigns through God's word. I think he was exactly correct about that point. This is buttressed to what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Speaking of his first epistle, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.12, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. By the way, we have already selected the theme for the 2024 Faulkner Bible Lectureship, Grace. Amen. In the 79-year history of the Faulkner Bible Lectureship, we've never had the theme of grace. Now, I don't think that's intentional. Some people will say, are you shocked? (laughs) Well, I was shocked, actually. Thing is, I wanted to correct that. And so we're going to be dealing with the theme of grace in 2024. Salvation is by God's grace. This grace is only learned by listening to and obeying the righteousness of the commandments of God, which is the gospel of the grace of God, which is the true grace of God. You know, you've got commercials these days. Franklin Graham was seemed like he was on every other section of Fox News commercials where he was, oh, Franklin oh, Graham was, oh, you know how he talks, oh, Franklin oh, Graham. He was saying that you need to pray this prayer and then call this number. And now you got this dude that's walking on the seashore. Have you seen him? He's walking on the sands of the seashore holding a Bible, you know. And he says, I want you to pray this prayer and I want to send you a Bible. Well, you don't read anywhere in the New Testament about anybody praying a prayer to get saved. One of our own brethren back in 2000 and before then was saying that you need to pray this prayer and if you pray this prayer, you're part of the family of God. Just like our denominational friends have been saying for a long time. The fact is, you can't find that anywhere in the New Testament. What you can find is what the Bible actually teaches. What the psalmist longed for, all people have access to today. You know, Faulkner, I keep on bringing Faulkner up, but since the start of this semester, the fall semester, we've had 44 baptisms. 44. And we have more Bible studies that are ongoing. It's just been amazing Thing to witness. Before that, we had had 16 baptisms the year before with President Henry's first year in office, President Mitch Henry. So it's a total so far and counting of 60 of our students that have obeyed the gospel. I mean, this is a, spirit, a true spiritual revival. He calls it a spiritual awakening. I call it a revival, a true revival, because they're being taught the truth and they're obeying the gospel. That's the only way that you can actually find true salvation. Salvation is obtained by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, John 3.16. 
By repenting of sins. Acts 17.30 Confessing one's faith in Jesus as the risen Lord. Romans 10.10 And being immersed for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 16.16 Yes, I accept Mark 16.9-20 as biblical because I do believe it belongs in the text. I wrote a book about it, but that's the only reason why I believe it belongs in the Bible. I'm still hoping and I'm still trusting and praying that there's going to be an archaeological discovery made where they find a first century, late first century, early second century manuscript that has the long ending of Mark and I'm going to say, yes, it was justified. I can only hope. I can only hope. But still, Mark 16, 16, I believe is what Jesus said. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. It's as simple as one plus one equals two. If you have an English student to diagram that sentence, if I was able to write on this board, I'd do it. You diagram the sentence. I same frustration. Uh, the basic sentence, because I use a whiteboard all the time when I'm teaching. He shall be saved. Who shall be saved? He that believes and is baptized. My, my dad was a student at Freed Hardeman, along with your dad, Grady. Uh, he uh, and a few of his preacher friends, uh, preacher student friends, uh, knew this young girl who was an English student. And they're trying to convert her. She's not a member of the church. And they came up to her one day and said, Why don't you, you know, we're having some difficulty in English. We're having some difficulty the idea of diagramming sentences. Why don't you diagram Mark 16, 16 for us, if you don't mind? Sure, do that. So she diagrammed, she came back grinning. She said, I see your point. She was baptized not long after that. She saw the truth. It's that simple. It's that simple. At that moment, when one does that, the Lord adds that person to His church. The undenominational church of Jesus Christ. My grandfather in 1939 was a denominational preacher. He also was in the credentials committee for Alabama, Mississippi for the Free Will Baptist Church. That meant he reviewed the credentials of preachers to see whether they were in the faith, along with the other members of that committee. Well, he worked during the Depression years. 1939 was in the middle of the Depression. He worked at a sawmill on the banks of Hell's Creek. You know where Hell's Creek is, right? No, of course you don't. Hell's Creek is in Lamar County, Alabama, where all my folks are from. Now, it is said of Hell's Creek that it's the only place in the world where when you catch fish, you don't have to cook them. <coughs> but it's strongly suggested that you do. Well, he worked on this sawmill and worked alongside a young man about his age who was a member of the church. Lyman Lawrence was his name. Tony Lawrence, who preaches at Menville, Tennessee, at the Bobby Branch Church, has been there a long time. That's his dad. That was grandfather, his grandfather. So Brother Lawrence was studying with my grandfather during the lunch breaks. Actually got in arguments about the Bible. But in the course of those arguments slash discussions, he convinced my grandfather that voting people in the church was wrong and that instrumental music was wrong. So he was going to bring it up to the credentials committee meeting. And when he did, they said, oh, that's old Campbellite doctrine. He didn't know what Campbellite was. But then he heard there's going to be a Campbellite that was going to be preaching a meeting. Well, it wasn't Campbellite. It was a gospel preacher. A preacher that was going to be coming nearby where he lived. Gus Nichols. Who became very close to my grandfather. Very close friends between the Nichols and Hesters over the years. Brother Nichols preached a sermon that night on baptism, which my grandfather attended. He took notes 
on a pad, notepad. My grandmother was already expecting my dad. This is October 1939 or thereabouts, September, October. And, the, and her doctor already said, you need to stay in bed because she was great with child, obviously. And so he was going to prove that preacher wrong. He's going to look up those scriptures and prove him wrong. He said, Clora, he can't be right on baptism. I'm going to prove him wrong. After several weeks of looking up those scriptures, he said, Clora, we're as wrong as we can be on baptism. He went into town in Vernon, Alabama and sought out Brother W.A. Holly, who's now deceased. Brother Holly had a withered right arm. And he talked to Brother Holly about a couple of other issues and then he agreed to let Brother Holly baptize him into Christ. He was going to go back and tell the church why he was leaving. They wouldn't allow him to come into the door of the church building to do that. But his father-in-law owned the property, owned the house next to the property of the church. So he said, can we use your living room? He said he thought there was going to be just a few members of, that, of the church where he grew up to come out and hear him. It was the entire congregation came out to hear him preach on why I am a member of the church of Christ. Later on, he, he received a letter signed uh, by an individual he knew that said, we would rather see you dead and in your grave than a member of the Campbellite church. But he became a preacher. All of his sons, including my dad, became preachers. And at one point we had about 17 or 18 preachers in our family. Now it's about maybe 11 or 12 preachers now. My dad and all of his brothers have passed, well, almost all. One brother still living in the Boot Hill, Missouri, Johnny. But as a result of his decision all those years ago, I stand here before you today. I shudder to think where I would have ended up if my grandfather had not decided to obey the gospel. One person's decision can make an impact on so many. But one of the first things he was convinced on was the same thing that makes you a Christian makes you a member of the church. You don't go through a separate process to join the church. Thanks be to God who offers his salvation today and offers it clearly in his inspired word. And we can obtain that salvation and we can offer it to others and offer them the hope of heaven itself. And I hope that that's what all of us will do from this day forward. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Thank you.